Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, I speak with Robin Schrader, the Director of Initiatives for the Humanities for the Public Good, a Mellon-funded grant awarded to the College of Arts and Sciences. In our conversation, Dr. Schrader defines the term public humanities and speaks to its vital role in our community. She also describes some new funding opportunities for UNC's graduate students that promote a public-facing nature to their humanistic scholarship. Robin, thanks for talking with us today. I appreciate your time. I'm really glad to be here. How would you define the term public humanities? Public humanities is not distinct from its own history, nor is that history distinct from the history of the humanities itself. So what you um, what you get when you're talking about public humanities is an idea as a phrase that has its roots in the so-called culture wars of the 1980s which is when um, tremendous pressure began to um, mount on the academy to be relevant in humanities circles. Um, And that actually, that effort was really spearheaded by the state humanities councils themselves and by the then heads of the NEH, Bill Bennett and Lynn Cheney. Um, So you have this history of public humanities that has its origins in, in federal politics and in the notion that humanists were somehow disengaged. They were talking about highly theoretical and abstract things that regular people couldn't understand and they needed to come um, back to regular topics. Uh, I don't think that that um, circa 1980s era notion does justice to the history of public engagement that you really see happening in American universities for as long as they've been around. Now, of course, they've also been quite exclusive of lots of publics as long as they've been around. But um, universities have long-standing traditions of public lectures, of doing work that directly relates to public health, public transit, and um, human culture. Um, and public humanities, after its sort of phrasal origins um, happened in the, in the 80s, in the 90s, and the early 2000s, really comes of age in the university as a movement to try to teach scholars how um, to translate their own work sometimes, to do work that starts out always already as being community-driven or community-based, or to, um, to make fine art or performance that is, that is not only for publics but with publics. Today, the byword of public humanities is share authority, right? So the idea is that the who, who owns knowledge cannot only be the answer to that question cannot only be the university it has to be shared between scholars and people in public life with other kinds of knowledge you referenced academic work can you talk a little bit about your work in your um, your graduate studies yeah so i actually today is the 10th anniversary of the day i was admitted to graduate school i got a note from my advisor this morning uh apparently in commemoration <laughs> uh, i um At the time I went to graduate school, I'd been working in museum education for a couple of years for Abraham Lincoln's uh, house and at the Museum of Science Industry in Chicago. And I wanted to find a program of graduate study that would combine horizons of public engagement with traditional deep scholarship. 
So what I did was I went to Brown. I got an MA in public humanities that involved a practicum in um, curation and curating museum-style exhibits. And then I did my dissertation research um, as a traditional history dissertation, case studies on popular understandings of the U.S. Constitution over mm. American history. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I can. Yeah, I know you can. <laughs> Hundreds of pages. <laughs> yeah. How many footnotes do you want? Uh, just, a, just a couple. <laughs> so, right. Very few. The question that I had was, how have people been able to use the Constitution to make a political case for themselves? So we know the Constitution is continually reinterpreted by judges, but what does this look like in the court of public opinion and how closely do those kinds of understandings dovetail? So just to give you one example, one of my case studies looked at a community of former American slaves living in colonial Liberia in the 1830s. Mm-hmm. So people who were born and raised in the United States who are living in a U.S. colony who um, have a political uprising in 1834 to really agitate for freedom of the press and the right to bear arms um, really directly because of their experience of the Bill of Rights. What, what part of the country was that in? It was in Monrovia, Liberia. Okay. It actually is not in U.S. territory. And these people were, um, at the time, they didn't even have a good word for what they were. They usually called themselves Americans in Liberia. Okay, Later they become Americo-Liberians. But who they are nationally, because it's a U.S. colony, right? It's, and they oh. are former slaves who didn't mm-hmm. have full citizenship when they were here. Right. <laughs> so it's a really it's really complicated to talk yeah, about. That's why, how I think they... that's why I was a little confused. Exactly. That's, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. How did you come across that that phenomenon or that case? I think when I started the project, I really thought um, it would be about something else altogether. I was looking for people who wanted to. So Article Five in the U.S. Constitution gives you a way to rewrite the thing. It's it's how it's how we amend the Constitution. Right. There are two different ways, and I thought, why haven't we ever had another constitutional convention? Why don't people take Article Five seriously? I want to find people who wanted to rewrite this thing. Oh, okay. And yeah. what you don't find all that much of in American history are people who were constitutional abolitionists. Even American communists didn't want to abolish the Constitution and start over. I mean, it's really. Yeah. It has been remarkably universal as a mm-hmm. as a document, and very unlike the Declaration of Independence, which people use to talk about you know breaking ties and starting over. The Constitution, you know, there's just a real sense of, of permanence and and continuity around it. So I didn't find what I was looking for, but I did find librarians. So you came to UNC as part of a Mellon grant titled Humanities for the Public Good. Can you talk a little bit about this grant and your role within this uh, this endeavor? Yeah, so the Humanities for the Public Good initiative is at its core an initiative to do three things. One is to try to find ways to credential publicly engaged work that's already going on, to give people awards, to notice that there is there is longstanding public engagement here, that, and it's not always credited in current tenure and promotion standards or, or doctoral programs of study. Two, we want to catalyze new public engagement. We want more people to learn that public scholarship is real scholarship that has its own skills. That's really difficult. That takes kind of a lot of time. To get more departments and programs interested in the very difficult work of incorporating public scholarship into scholarly standards in their field. And that might also mean changing programs of doctoral study to include Mm -hmm. things like applied research, so summer practicums and so on. 
Um, and then finally, we want to collect the data that comes out of doing all this work. So we'll give, we'll give graduate students and faculty grants to do public projects and various other forms of engagement. And we'll ask back from them data that shows who worked with them, who was affected, what were the impacts. And that data is something we can use to continue to build a case for the public importance of the humanities, of course, as well as the American University itself. And can you talk a little bit about your role within this um, this initiative? They've hired me to administer these grants, and I work for Terry Rhodes, who is the Senior Dean for Fine Arts and Humanities out of in whose office the, the grant is located. Um, that's in the College of Arts and Sciences. And so I also have support in terms of infrastructure here at the IAH, um, where you all have been very nice to give me an office out of which to work. The other person working on this grant most closely um, is about to be hired. We're going to hire an, a digital integration coordinator to work with the Digital Innovation Lab to try to make its resources more accessible mm -hmm. and to help faculty and graduate students who are doing digital projects to think about um, the, I think the problem we're trying to solve is that too many digital projects are underutilized. And right. so bring more publics into the vast array of digital projects that are that are out there and archives as well. So do you have any ideas for how to do that? Because I know one issue we have is building an audience for this podcast in and of itself. I have one idea right now, which is that I'm um, setting up meetings with local public libraries to talk with them about their own digital media and digital literacy efforts. I think one of the things we can do is to run a workshop or two off campus um, in the libraries that have different publics already attached to them. Um, and that might help to, um, well, to help us to understand why people beyond the campus are, um, why there seems to be such a wall between the mm -hmm. kinds of knowledges here and and how, for example, the public libraries approach very similar kinds of endeavors. There's lots of learning curves like that everywhere you look. Yeah. And audience building, I mean, it's, it's exactly the same challenges that museum educators and, and museum professionals face around the country. Um, you know, audiences, in-person in audiences are shrinking. People are doing most everything alone, so including listening to podcasts. Right. Um, so, no, I, I think that's sort of the challenge of the 21st century right now that we're up against. So this is something we ask all of our interviewees. Uh, what's a book that changed your life? Before I went to go work at the Abraham Lincoln Home National Historic Site in Springfield, Illinois, I read his secretary, John Hay's account of the Lincoln presidency. So Hay was 23 years old and had just graduated from Brown University when he goes off to work for the president of the United States as his middle of the night I'm going to dictate your notes, kind of that level of companion, along with his, his colleague, John Nicolay. And he, the sort of real human dimensions whereby he understands the sort of figure of Lincoln, who we all know in his 19-foot-tall marble form, <laughs> really right. helps me first, helps me to do my job at Lincoln Home, which was the job that changed my life, um, where I was meeting with people from around the world every day who felt like they knew this man, Abraham Lincoln, whose house we were standing in, and were trying to have really difficult conversations about the history of slavery and of freedom and of a uh, union um, and, um, 
and Lincoln is a helpful figure because everyone from everywhere now feels this kind of attachment to him. I actually met some people from North Carolina who wrote this lengthy letter about how much they loved him um, in the first, my first week on the job that got me very quickly over my fears about the regional differences that, you know, when we're talking about the Civil War that we might be um, experiencing. But, you know, I think... Um, John Hay's life also kind of pointed me back to Brown. And I think I, I already knew there was this public humanities program, but Brown now has its special collections library is the John Hay Library. It has one of the largest Lincoln collections in the world. And one of the first things that I did as a graduate student, my first year of graduate school, was go to work on a uh, the Lincoln Bicentennial exhibition that they put up to 200 years of Abraham Lincoln. So they have everything from you know, locks of his hair, and they have this very odd object, which is a hammer that some people who were probably wrong think that John Wilkes Booth was carrying when he shot Lincoln. So really kind of intense things to um, pint glasses from the Illinois State Fair in, in 1934. <laughs> <laughs> so trying to sort of understand the sort of man, the man and the myth. So that book really got into my life, and I think pretty deep ways. It, it was much more than a book. <laughs> Is there anything you want to plug or, or announce to the public? I would just say the Humanities for the Public Good Initiative has a website at hpg.unc.edu. That's where we keep the calls for applications for all the kinds of opportunities for faculty and graduate students and their collaborators at the college. And I would really welcome anyone who has questions or who wants to be involved with public engagement to, to reach out to me anytime. Check back at ieh.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.